Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating and follow and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. I'm pleased today to be joined by Dr. Paul Beck from Oklahoma State University. Welcome. Well, welcome, uh, Peter. It's very good to be on here, and, and thank you for the invitation to speak on your podcast. My pleasure. Um, so you received degrees in animal science from Oklahoma State University, uh, bachelor's and master's of science. Yes, sir. And then, so, but you grew up on a ranch, a farm and ranch operation. Is that correct? Yeah, I was, I was raised about 30 miles from here in Stillwater, where I'm currently located. Uh, I uh, always intended to remain here my entire life. Uh, but, oh, about 22 years ago, I uh, had an opportunity to uh, continue my education uh, in Arkansas. So uh, moving, you know, from the beginnings of the West, the uh, where we start getting into uh, drier, arid climates and into, you know, the deep South, it was uh, quite a change. But Spent 20 years there and, and got my Ph.D. and uh, really enjoyed our time in Arkansas before I had a chance to move back to Oklahoma. Yeah, but you didn't you didn't go into a, um, a doctoral program where you were on assistantship. You were working as a herdsman at a research station. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, I was located at Hope, Arkansas. Uh, at their Southwest research station, uh, four hours from campus. And I was originally hired to be a herdsman or the animal unit manager for a substantial cow-calf herd that they have there. Uh, we did cow-calf, uh, stalker cattle, and some finishing research uh, while I was there. Um, so we looked at all aspects of the beef production system uh, from that station uh, in uh, southern Arkansas. And uh, while I was there, I was given the opportunity to do my Ph.D. It took about six years instead of three to uh, complete my degree. There was a lot of driving uh, associated with that to get to campus to take classes. That was before we had this wonderful technology of uh, being able to remotely educate from experts across the world. Um, um, then whenever I finished my PhD there, um, the, there was a faculty position at that same research station that came open and I was able to just stay right there for uh, right at 14 years as a faculty member. So in total, I was there uh, uh, 21 years. And then two years? Plus or so ago, you got to go home? Yep, right at two years ago, August of 2018, we moved back to uh, Stillwater. Um, got an uh, extension specialist job based here on campus, uh, where I was focusing more primarily on 
forages and grazing livestock nutrition. I'm still doing some of that, but my main focus is nutrition, both confined cattle feeding and, and grazing livestock nutrition as well uh, here in Oklahoma. And this, um, so we've, we've already talked about cow-calf versus stalker versus finishing. And um, frequently people will ask me questions about why doesn't the cattle industry do X, Y, or Z? It, it, it implies to me that people think about this vertically integrated uniform industry that's, you know, wherever uh, it occurs and and the beef cattle production practices look very different depending on where you are and then there are various segments of that industry so cow could you just give us a brief description of cow calf versus or maybe even take us through a life cycle yeah so um cow calf is is kind of the factory of the beef production system you know they produce the raw product which is the the calves um those calves are produced in a, in a large part from oklahoma and texas east into the southeastern united states uh, right now the the three biggest cow calf states are texas oklahoma and it usually it's either missouri or um Nebraska is, is the other, the third. Um, but when we look at the, where the cows are located uh, or the, the concentration of cows are located in uh, Oklahoma and Texas, it's, you know, east of I-35. Um, so there's a large number of cows in the more humid part of those states. And, and there's a lot of cows throughout the southeastern United States. Those states, they're really good at producing grass, uh, forages, and you can grow, you know, uh, forages for a long period of time through the, the year. So, uh, the, you know, that climate, we can grow, grow grass and keep cattle out on pasture, you know, for 10 months, 12 months a year uh, with management. It's not a good place to fatten cattle. Uh, in the United States, our, our finishing system that, you know, has been developed over the last 75 years is based on, on getting those cattle off from the cow and they get put uh, either into a growing program or their stalker program where they're grazed to get to heavier weights or sent directly to the feedlot and fed high concentrate or, or, or grain-based and, and byproduct-based diets to uh, finish them or fatten them to where they're, they can express that marbling and make that tender, you know, cut that people, you know, really love when they think about American beef. So to concentrate cattle and feed them, you know, these high-grain diets, you need a a really dry climate uh, and it really needs to be to where they can remain cool and, and not be too, too cold through the winter. So um, the high plains in the further Western region of Texas, Oklahoma Panhandle, 
uh, western Kansas and western Nebraska, you know, that's where the cattle are fattened predominantly in, in our southern Great Plains or in the Great Plains states. So the beef production system is not just one uniform system. It's uh, very disjointed and very segmented based on the climate that's best suited for the production of that stage of production for those animals. And so that creates a, a lot of opportunity to move those cattle and uh, different types of operations to, to fit. And Oklahoma is, is in that transition zone from the humid east going into the arid west. It's also, for one reason or another, in the transition zone from cow-calf into stalker and finishing. So it's a, a you know uniquely situated uh, kind of in that middle ground, not too far south or it gets so hot, no, not too far north where we, we can't grow forages for a long period of time through the year. Um, we're uniquely sit, situated for growing cattle, cow-calf, and finishing cattle. And so hopefully every year uh, we get to wean a live calf from the cow. Hopefully she gave us a calf and hopefully it survived. Not all the time, not 100%, but the goal is uh, 90-some percent of the time to wean a calf. Um, so from birth to weaning is five, six months or? It's, it's uh, you know, the book is right at seven months. Seven. So the range of age, if we have a really tight controlled calving season with, you know, the cow herd I managed in Arkansas, we had a 60 day calving season. So the, you know, we would wean at an average age of right at 210 days. Um, but on either end of that, they could be, you know, uh, nine months old or six months old. Um, most or a lot of our producers have quite a bit longer calving season. Um, so, you know, the range is fairly close to that, you know, five to 10 months of age when we really start looking at, you know, those calves being weaned and removed from the cow. So hopefully the producers are aligning the reproductive cycle and therefore the nutrient nutritional demands of the cow up with their forage resource to minimize supplemental feeding. Yeah, so, you know, one of the, as an extension specialist, whenever I talk to producers, you know, we try to fit the type of cow to your environment. And that is the size of the cow, how much milk that cow will produce. But also, we need to fit our calving season to our environment um, just so that we can, uh, you know, like you say, minimize supplemental feeding, minimize hay feeding, um, and and have a forage-based program, um, it's when we get away from matching our biology to the environment that we really get into problems with uh, 
you know, having to feed too much and, and lack of profitability. Um, we can do that for a short while and in good prices. Um, but having, you know, our production, our biology, uh, to where it's dovetailed with the, our environment, then, you know, we can have a sustainable system uh, that is profitable and productive. So the, the, I think, I don't know where I heard this, but the, the idea was that um, the feed you graze is cheaper than what gets delivered on a truck. Absolutely. Um, the, uh, and, it, and it's probably, it, if it's managed well, it's of the same or higher quality than what, what we can deliver. Uh, um, you know, most of our grain growing forages are, you know, provide as much energy as corn would, but have more protein. And, you know, it's, it's calories and protein and the minerals that, that the cattle need to be productive. Now we, you know, in, in most cases, our forages don't meet the mineral needs, but, you know, if we have a grazing system, you know, designed with multiple different, you know, forage forages, then, you know, we can meet that energy and, and protein requirements of, you know, whatever cow we're trying to fit into that system. Well, so uh, just to touch base on one thing before I forget it again, um, we talk about fattening cattle, but in fact, they're still growing muscle and to a certain extent, I mean, it's not merely fat that's being deposited on an animal when it's in a finishing phase. Oh, uh, absolutely. Yes. Um, you know, whenever... Um, we look at the, the growth curves uh, up until they're about 28% fat, they're still putting on a, a good amount of muscle. You know, muscle growth continues until maturity and, you know, the protein accretion slows down as they get closer to being uh, finished or, or reach that, you know, fat endpoint that we're targeting, but they still are putting on muscle and, and that's, quite a large amount of muscle when they're smaller, you know, they'll try to enter the feed yard between seven and, and, and 800 pounds or, or 850 pounds. Whenever they go into those feed yards, they're still putting on a lot of muscle and, and our, you know, cattle, they're getting slaughtered at, you know, 1,350, 1,400 pounds. So there's a long period of, of growth that they're putting on a lot of muscle. Um. Okay, so now to the forage systems. Uh, we have cool season, we have warm season, we've got annuals, we've got perennials, we've got grasses, legumes, forbs, we've got natives, we've got introduced species, and, and I think you've got all of them in Oklahoma. Is that correct? Yes, we do. Um, the uh, eastern part of the state, is a mixture of introduced warm season grasses, uh, introduced cool season grasses, and then in certain locations, tall grass prairie, which is native forage, you know, you know, that was the historic forage that was located here. Um, in the western part of the state, it starts 
getting away from those more uh, rain-intensive or, or precipitation-intensive type introduced forages. There's some introduced blue stems that are grown quite a bit, but it gets into a lot of native range. But that's also where uh, predominantly our, our cool season annuals, you know, wheat is the primary one, and, and it's in central and western Oklahoma as we go further west. So um, in eastern Oklahoma, the, the cropping systems uh, don't rely on, on wheat uh, as the primary cash crop, um, but as we go further west, they do. So uh, lots of annuals used in eastern Oklahoma as cover crops, but it's not a cash crop. And those cover crops are youth raised by livestock. The, as we get into central and western Oklahoma, where, where wheat is the primary cash crop, we've got the opportunity to use that in, in kind of a double cropping system where cattle graze that wheat pasture during the uh, fall and early spring. And if we pull those cattle off from wheat pasture um, before it, it goes reproductive, uh, starts joining out and, and trying to set grain, you know, about the end of February, 1st of March, then we can graze that, remove the cattle and still harvest a, a, a grain crop from that. So this uh, mixed system, you know, diversified system of cropping and livestock is a, a great opportunity for the farmers of this state, especially in western Oklahoma, where we can't uh, historically grow a lot of, of corn um, or, or a lot of those other uh, cash grain crops. So, uh, you know, that diversified cropping and livestock system is a hallmark of Oklahoma agriculture, and that's in western and central Oklahoma. Uh, eastern Oklahoma, we can grow a lot of uh, legumes and clovers and, and uh, alfalfa. There's, there's a good bit of alfalfa production in western Oklahoma as well. It's deep-rooted and, you know, doesn't mind, uh, you know, drier climates too. So we have a very diverse forage climate um, because we're in, like I said, we're in that transition zone going from the humid east into the arid west and the systems, the forage systems that we can produce on one side of the state are, are nothing similar to that that we can grow on the other side of the state. And, and also, so um, the, the question of cool season versus warm season grasses. Um, the um, cool season perennials, uh, and in, in the case of Oklahoma and the, in, in the southeastern United States, uh, we're talking tall fescue. Um, they primarily don't start growing until we hit I-35 and move east. Um, there are areas in central Oklahoma, highly fertile bottom ground, uh, where we can grow uh, tall fescue, um, but as we move further east and get, in, get into higher rainfall areas, it becomes quite predominant. Uh, in, in eastern Oklahoma, uh, most of those pastures with tall fescue 
We'll also have Bermuda grass and, and other warm season grasses as well. So they kind of naturally grow in, in mixtures. But that gives a really nice nearly year-round forage base for cattle production. Because the, the cool seasons will gr grow earlier in the spring than the warm seasons. Uh, slow down in the summer when the warm seasons really grow and then maintain some growth into the fall when maybe the first frost would have hit some of the warm seasons. Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, in, in southeastern Oklahoma, which is very close to where I was in, in southwestern Arkansas, uh, you know, we can start getting tall fescue growth where we could start grazing, you know, mid to late October. And uh, the warm season grasses, in, in many cases, will grow up until early to mid-October. So, you know, we'll have grazing of the warm season grasses from May all the way through October. You know, in a good year, we would have grazing of the cool season uh, perennials from October, early November into December. And then just during December uh, and January, you know, we may not have a, a growing forage crop. So uh, those forages, you know, just kind of work together naturally to create, you know, productive grazing for about 10 months out of the year if it's well managed and, and fertilized. And, and it would be possible, perhaps, even though the forage isn't growing, to still have some stockpile kind of a grazing system, or you'd be feeding hay, correct? Yes. So um, we uh, worked on, on research while I was in Arkansas, and we're, we're doing some similar demonstrations of this concept where we stockpiled some Bermuda grass to use during the, you know, late fall. Um, and then we stockpiled some tall fescue to utilize through December into uh, January. Um, with that in a cow-calf system, using rotational grazing and, and, and strip grazing of our stockpiled forages, we were able to have 365 day grazing. Uh, one, a couple of the years, we only fed hay for about two weeks out of the year. And in a lot of cases in that same region, you know, there are producers that are feeding hay for about four months out of the year. So, you know, stockpiling is, you know, it sounds complicated. It's really just a simple concept of reserving fresh forage growth uh, during the fall to utilize you know, later on in the year when it wouldn't normally be present. Um, I was, uh, I put together some data looking at the reported uh, hay production by the USDA over the last 40 years. And the hay production really took off about 1976, whenever Vermeer invented the, the round baler. And it became a lot handier to bale hay. There was a lot less hand labor to do that. And, uh, you know, just to look at that, the, uh, the chart, it's just been a, 
you know, steady linear increase ever since. And just more and more of this hay gets put up and it doesn't last very long if you don't store it inside. So every bit of that hay that gets baled increases every year. It has to be fed. So we're, we're taking a, a forage crop that if we utilize it standing, but let the cow do the harvesting, you know, it's a cheap economical nutrition source for the cow and we're putting a lot of money into equipment and fertilizer to cut it package it and then refeed it to the cow later so stockpiling is one of those ways that we can decrease the amount of hay that's fed uh, it's just so easy to get out there on a tractor and cut rake and bale hay all summer just so that we can you know, put it back out to the cows all winter. Well, uh, one, I, you know, we have this increase in the amount of hay being put up, but I don't think we're seeing that dramatic increase in the number of cows to be fed, um, which is interesting. And then number two, I remember Dr. Kallenbach saying something like, he was describing Missouri as a recreational haymaking state. I had, um, I, I would never be brave enough to, to say this, but we had a, a speaker at a field day um, a few years ago, you know, said, you know, the reason why we bail so much hay and people were asking, he goes, no, because we can't, don't want to spend that much time with our wife. So. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I think that when Rob uh, gave that quote, he was saying that uh, maybe half the hay that gets made never gets fed for one reason or another. Um, it's stored improperly, so we have large storage losses. It's fed improperly, so we have large feeding losses. Um, or it was never needed in the first place, and so uh, it just sits there. Um, so what does it cost to make a ton of hay? Yeah, it's about $45 a ton or, uh, or $45 a bale, so that's about $90 a ton. Um, and and the, the, the feed that you feed, the, the hay that you feed is never going to be better or as good as the forage crop you cut to bale. And it was yeah. probably a little over mature when you cut it. So maybe if you had grazed it earlier, you'd have gotten more re, you know, value in terms of animal performance out of it. So it's a... Absolutely. Um, it's a system that needs to be re-examined, and we certainly, as you were saying earlier, with with temporary fencing or the the new technologies that are available, certainly within the last couple decades, there are options now that wouldn't have been available, um, say, half a century ago. Yeah, maybe it's getting close to that now. Um, <laughs> to American livestock producers back in, say, the 60s and 70s. Um, but you've also worked with um, forage crops, which, again, annuals, but planted specifically to be grazed. So things like brassicas and uh, maybe even some of the warm season annual grasses. Yes. Um, we've done, or I've done throughout my career, we, we looked at a lot of those in Arkansas, um, just planting cool season annuals, uh, uh, utilizing those to, to have a green growing, 
uh, crop to, to graze um, throughout the, the winter in Arkansas. And, and one of the things we looked at uh, was interceding into Bermuda grass. There's a lot of Bermuda grass that, you know, it, it's a great forage base. You know, it starts growing in most parts of, you know, the South, um, end of April, 1st of May. And, you know, it, it produces well through the summer, you know, especially when we get rain and, and with fertilizer and, and then going all the way into, you know, October and, you know, if we, uh, with the no-till drill technology, uh, if we could graze that off or cut cut it for hay and, and remove uh, most of the residue at the end of, of the growth phase, you know, first of October, uh, we can intercede or no-till drill cool season annuals into those Bermuda grass fields. And then uh, in a lot of cases, uh, start grow, grazing those in December. Uh, these annuals, uh, warm season annuals and cool season annuals are, are very productive. They're very uh, high in quality, high in digestibility. So they're supplying a lot of, you know, calories for the cow. Um, the cool season annuals are very high in protein. So, you know, 25 to 30% crude protein in the uh, late fall and, and through the winter. And then uh, whenever they start uh, going more reproductive in the spring, you know, they'll still be about 20% uh, crude protein. You know, a growing calf only requires about 12 to 14% crude protein, you know, depending on how big they are. So, uh, and a beef cow, you know, she only needs about eight to 12% crude protein. You know, if she's lactating and producing a lot of milk, we're looking at 10 to 12% crude protein. So a lot more protein in those annuals than what's actually uh, needed. So uh, we've used those as a supplement for lower quality forages on, on a beef cow, you know, by letting her into those paddocks that we planted uh, into cool season annuals for just a few hours, uh, uh, eight hours every third day or, or every other day would supply, a, you know, a lot more protein and energy than what she'd need to maintain body condition, along with some either stockpiled uh, Bermuda grass or, um, or low quality hay. Um, so decreasing the need for concentrate type supplements delivered to the cow. Um, we've uh, also, you know, the, the warm season annuals are a great uh, resource in, in a diversified cropping and livestock system or in, you know, if we could intercede those, I've, we've tried interceding those into Bermuda grass as well, and it actually does work, uh, you know, getting in a little bit before the Bermuda grass starts growing and, and planting those. So it, you know, adds some productivity to, to those types of systems. Right now, we've got a lot of interest in, uh, you know, the, you used the, the, the term earlier, regenerative agriculture. And cover crops are, are getting to have a lot of uh, press for, 
you know, using in, in cash cropping type systems. And I was really interested in that very much until we started getting a lot of more questions about grazing. And then whenever people started talking about grazing cover crops, you know, that I became a lot more interested. And, you know, for those, it's more than just that wheat pasture that I talked about earlier. You know, they're looking at different cereal grains, oats, triticale, rye, um, you know, the brassicas, the, the turnips and the radishes and rape and kale and, and those types of, of things. And uh, putting those into those mixtures for the agronomic benefits to the system, but all of those are very high quality grazing crops. And, uh, you know, the, there's some tricks, some of those, the brassicas, especially cattle are, cattle like to graze grass. They're, they are resistant to a lot of those, uh, brassic, brassica type crops until they're exposed to them. And then once they realize they're edible, they will start grazing. I mean, usually that's after the, the, the frost, when there is sugar start increasing. Some of the other really uh, neat things in this cover cropping is for our wheat producing area, used to we had just a, a tillage type fallow system on our continuous wheat. And they would uh, just start, you know, after wheat harvest, start plowing and continue plowing all summer, keeping a denuded, you know, basically just dirt field out there all summer. This leads to all types of erosion, the need for terracing. Um, and then no-till agriculture came in um, and it works well, but um, for no-till to work, we don't have, when we're not, don't have that tillage tool to take care of our weed problems, we need to have a rotation. Um, and that's where a lot of these cover crops for summer cover crops have replaced that summer fallow. And they're planting mixtures that include uh, beans and sun hemp, uh, different types of beans, soybeans, mung beans, cowpeas, uh, utilizing okra, um, along with the Sudans and, and uh, sorghums. And it's surprising to me, and, it's, and it surprises me every time I see it, but uh, when we turn cattle onto those cover crops, um, they will, of course, start grazing the what they're familiar with, the grasses, the sorghums, and the Sudans, and some of the millets, and then they discover the, the beans. And then all of a sudden, all of the okra is gone. You cannot find an okra in the field. And, and I, uh, it's shocking that, you know, it takes a while. And it almost follows that exact same pattern. Every time you turn cattle into one of these uh, during the summer and, and graze these uh, cover crop blends, once they, they discover that okra is a uh, edible crop, they just go seek it out and find every bit of it. So uh, there's, there's cattle are not familiar with these, these plants. And once they're exposed to them, there's a learning curve. And it's, it's enjoyable to watch that uh, learning process and, and then their behaviors whenever they've figured it out. 
I've, I've joked for some time that there are two suitable uses for kale. One is as garnish and one is as forage. And, and maybe now I've found a use, uh, the appropriate use for okra. Um, <laughs> um, the, I've heard it said, um, and certainly maybe more with beef cattle than with dairy cattle, um, under modern sort of uh, North American and probably European systems. But we're feeding the, the microorganisms to feed the cow. Um, there is some bypass material. So, but, but is that maybe a sound way to look at it with beef cattle that we're worried about providing energy and um, uh, room and degradable protein so that the microorganisms can function effectively? Absolutely. The, uh, the whole reason for cattle is to take forage crops that humans can't use and turn that into an edible product. And that the reason why they can do it is because of the rumen, and it's just a big fermentation bag, and it's full of billions of microbes that break the fiber material down from these grazed forages. And you know, the byproduct from their fermentation is the energy and uh, whenever they reproduce, these microbes provide the protein to the cow uh, when it goes cycling uh, onto the lower gut. So for those, for the beef cattle to be productive and digest that fiber, we've got to meet the requirements of those microbes first. And, uh, you know, if, if one of the classic examples in Oklahoma is on our tall grass prairies uh, in, you know, Eastern Oklahoma, primarily Eastern and Central Oklahoma, um, very productive native range type ecosystem. Uh, during the early summer, it's, you know, high in, in energy, high in digestibility, and, you know, high in protein. But when we get to July, um, those plants evolved to be reproductive after about the middle of July. And if, if, it's, uh, if they get a rain in July or some of our other types of plants or western type range plants or our Bermuda grasses, they'll start growing leaf and, and produce a high quality, you know, more high quality forage. That tall grass prairie in the late summer uh, is reproductive. It's just stems and seed heads. And that's the production of during the late summer. So it's low in protein and low in digestibility. That protein is insufficient for the microbes to uh, digest fiber. And, you know, one of the, the classic supplementation programs developed here in Oklahoma, uh, they call it the Oklahoma Gold Program for marketing reasons, uh, is feeding one pound of a high-protein supplement, and um, it will increase gains by about a half pound a day because it's meeting the requirements 
of the rumen microbes for nitrogen. It speeds up the digestion of those low-quality range plants, uh, increases intake, and increases the passage rate out of the rumen. So, uh, you know, just meeting the requirements of the rumen for rumen-degradable protein, and it's just nitrogen, it's all those proteins are broken down into a carbon structure and the nitrogen. The microbes use that nitrogen from that protein supplement. And, um, you know, so that's the, the, the classic example of the deficiency in, in, uh, in the rumen and how that can impact, you know, digestibility of the grass and, and performance of the animal. And one of the many unique features of a rumen compared to monogastrics is it's not a flow-through system. It, it has to be broken, broken down mechanically and through the activity of the microorganisms broken down small enough to pass out of the rumen. So if we fill the rumen with poorly digestible material, it's going to be a while before there's room in the inn for the next guests to arrive. Yeah, um, output has to happen before more input can occur, for sure. It's a, it's a, to me, it's a very interesting system. And, you know, everything has to, to fit together for that beef cow to, to operate. We, we, we talk frequently about why ruminants rule and, and that key link between the conversion of cellulose into fat and muscle in the case of, of when um, fed to ruminants, where we can't use that directly. But fortunately, they're that key link in the food chain. Um, so let's see, we've talked about a lot of these things. Um, What's the extension service? Uh, we had Jimmy Henning on, um, and he spoke about it. But um, I spent a little time in it, and it ama- uh, I'm, I guess, surprised by the number of people that don't know what it is. So why should people know about it? Uh, how could they get in touch with it? So in Oklahoma and, and Arkansas as well, which are this, and I believe in Texas it's still the case, so the, the states I'm most familiar with, one of the reasons why everybody should know about the extension service is because they have a presence in every county of those states. And that's not necessarily true for all states, but there are local offices available. And as extension, we provide science-based um, information to stakeholders, whether it be a farmer, a a gardener, or, you know, somebody canning or or just trying to cook and prepare meals for their family without the bias of having a product to sell. So it's a service. It was, uh, you know, the, one of the key elements in in the cooperative extension is cooperative extension service and you know most of our programs are you know extremely moderately priced or free um, free information for those that that need it and know to ask Um, so that's one of the reasons why you know everybody should be aware of the cooperative extension service we don't we don't have anything to sell 
uh, we're trying to give away uh, our, our information. You know, and, you know, I was thinking about a lot of my uh, uh, theory classes on extension education. Um, you know, it was important enough, the, you know, land-grant colleges, uh, it was important enough to uh, the founding legislation was done during the Civil War. So there's this big, you know, you know, thing happening, but, you know, the uh, Congress and, and our, you know, uh, representatives knew it was important enough to develop this system, even though this other, all this stuff is going on. And, and basically it um, created the, the land rent, land grant colleges, which there's, you know, in every state, there is a one or, or two land grant universities. And, you know, that created the, the three stool mission of the land grant colleges is research to develop, you know, new ways to uh, produce food and, and utilize it to the best of uh, our ability, uh, teach the next generation of, of uh, people that uh, will become our stakeholders. And then extension was the third equal uh, stool, a leg of that stool. And, you know, uh, one of the things that separates United States agriculture from many of the other production systems in the world uh, is extension. We're, we are available to advise, you know, crop producers, livestock producers, and, uh, you know, teach them new and, and more productive ways to do uh, their job, which is producing food for, to feed not just the United States or Oklahoma, but to feed the world. And, and the two-way exchange of information. So um, there are advisory boards, or that may not be the right description, but from the local areas, people are um, able to voice concerns, identify problems that can get communicated up to the university. Uh, if somebody comes up with a problem, all of a sudden they're tapped into a national or in some cases international community of people who study that potential problem and maybe an answer could come or maybe that could guide some new research. It's not a one-size-fit-all type program. We have a local presence, you know, across Oklahoma and, you know, what works in rural northwest Oklahoma or the Oklahoma Panhandle is not going to be what works in Oklahoma City. Uh, in Oklahoma, you know, county Oklahoma, where Oklahoma City is, you know, it's and there are still some farms left in that county, but, you know, it's predominantly urban. And, you know, but what works there may not work in Tulsa, you know, or other major metropolitan areas. So that local stakeholder involvement is the key to set the, you know, agenda and, and the focus for each individual area of the state. So that's an important part of extension uh, and delivering those that service to the clientele isn't very useful if we're not supplying what they need and what they want. And so you're trained as an animal scientist. What What's with specialty in, in beef cattle. 
Um, what other sorts of what sorts of subjects or careers could come out of someone studying animal science or maybe if somebody was wanting to go online and, and look up journals that are available to the public to read, what sorts of, of information might they find if they start scanning the stacks, so to speak, when we used to do that physically in libraries? So, you know, to me, animal science is the most simple way to explain it is uh, it's uh, applied biology. Um, you know, in uh, the animal science departments, uh, you know, across the United States, there are, you know, dairy specialists. There are companion animal specialists, you know, that focus on dogs and cats and their nutrition or management and, and you know, uh, equine, you know, specialty and, and all that. But within each one of those, you know, there are uh, – meat scientists that focus on the fabrication of meat and meat quality. There are reproductive specialists that start, you know, at the beginning of the, the production chain that looking at getting animals to cycle and to rebreed and to be more productive, uh, be more reproductive. Um, then there's, you know, get, there's genetics and there's as many different, areas of focus in animal science as are our areas of, you know, biology. Um, we have a, a careers um, in, you know, as we're looking at the current students in our animal science departments, the interest in production agriculture is getting to be less and less, you know, people going back to the farm, is no longer, you know, what we do as far as training. And we are training, you know, people to go back and be farm managers and to be, you know, agricultural producers. And that's, that's going to be a key forever for, for our departments. But uh, many of our uh, undergrads are, you know, wanting to get into vet school to become veterinarians. Um, there's jobs in feed sales and, and, forage companies, um, uh, you know, sales, there's a lot of our uh, animal science graduates that become bankers and, and, you know, ag lenders, you know, and it's, uh, there's as many different jobs coming out of animal science departments as there are, you know, business job, you know, coming out of business school. So uh, it's just impossible to put your mind around, you know, I'm a, I'm a cowboy. I think it's, you know, the Oklahoma states, you know, the, they're, uh, they're the cowboys and, you know, I was raised on a ranch and, and that's kind of my focus, but, you know, there's as many different other careers, you know, in animal science that, um, and, uh, we try to get our students to take internships and, and, you know, look at other uh, areas and, you know, you don't know what you want to do until you've experienced a lot of these things. So uh, animal science is a huge career and, you know, we've got uh, quite a few of our uh, graduates go into medical school and, and uh, other different uh, types of programs you don't normally associate with 
uh, just a bunch of Aggies. So I'm, I'm, I'm smiling because I want to see what happens when someone who's well-trained in animal nutrition gets into medical school and goes, what? <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's for another, that's for another uh, day. Um, and of course, one of the things that we have ahead of us, uh, this occurred to me um, as I prepared a lecture remote, of course, uh, for a forages class was we keep hearing these by 2050 sort of goals for sustainable development in, in around the world. And I realized, okay, that's these students, you know, professional lifetimes that, that that's only 30 years from now. So, absolutely. and, and there's absolutely things that can be done today to take what we know from here and appropriately leverage that into other parts of the world to improve productivity, efficiency, which will lower impact, raise standard of living for producers, provide the food stuff that people need there. Um, and we can do it while we protect and enhance the environment in which it's taking place. So, I, so I, you know, the those population growth numbers, um, I, I see a lot of growth in, you know, Dallas and down through Waco into Austin and, and Oklahoma City is expanding and Tulsa is growing. And, you know, uh, those are, you know, in those particular instances, part of the, the most productive agricultural parts of those states, you know, in Oklahoma, that area around Oklahoma City where the urban growth is occurring or some very highly productive farmland and you see that in just area after area and it's not just the big cities that are growing uh, so along with the population growth we're going to increase you know we have a growing middle class around the world they're going to want to consume more animal products because that's the next logical step we get more money we want to eat eat better and that's you know a in my mind, a beef-related diet, but, you know, I guess we could, you know, say pork and chicken as well. But the, you know, so there's never been a time where the, the research and the extension efforts and the education coming out of our colleges of agriculture uh, were more important than now. You know, they were essential, you know, back in the mid-1800s, they were essential you know, when Smith Lieber Act, you know, in 1914, and they're just as important now as they, they ever were. And there's, there's research, um, and there's, you know, extension activities that have got to remain, uh, active and, and, you know, they're, they're important and we need to, to be, you know, focused on those areas where, where we can increase efficiency decrease our impact on the environment along with that. Well, thanks again for spending time and going over some things. And I know that there's a great deal more depth to everything that we could have gone into, but kind of maybe an introductory of an appetizer, if you will. And we might come back for a later serving. Um, it, it's fair. I've asked you a bunch of questions. If you'd like to ask me uh, a question or two, that would only be fair. 
So, I mean, I've seen you speak on several times on the the health qualities of a of a you know meat you know related diet. You know, increasing meat. How are how are you? Uh, what's your perception of of people's take home from that? You you've mentioned to me you're you've lectured to to you know audiences full of doctors and, and dietitians. How are people taking that, and what are what's their take home from that? And you think you know how can we help you improve the the reach of your message? Good questions. Um, one. I think that hearing someone say or or just describe what actually happens in current production systems because agriculture I don't think has done a good job of talking about um, ecosystem services as well as modern practices and so what people know is only what they've heard and frequently there's misunderstanding so it it helps to have people uh, information and then introduce people to the sources of that information. So continue in what you're doing. The audience is bigger than you know, um, but maybe we need to work on better ways to get that information because we've got very loud, very well-financed voices against animal agriculture. Um, so uh, I think Somebody put it recently that, you know, eating red meat, you're going to kill yourself. And then by producing it, you're going to kill everybody else, right? That that message that's out there. And, and being able to tell people, relax, you're not going to destroy the planet. And then here are all these physicians that say, you're not going to kill yourself. Okay, that helps. Um, I think that we have a lot of um, distance to make up yet. We're, we're several decades behind in this race. But I think that people, more and more information is coming to light, pointing to what I think is some very good news about uh, reversing chronic diseases and allowing people to live without the need for ongoing medication, which sort of is the, at least there's a potential. So that's good news. Um, and then I think also the good news that properly managed ruminant animal agriculture is an essential part of sustainable food systems. And we just have to get better at talking about that. So more people understand it's not either or. It's, we have to have both. And I think Today, too frequently, we devolve, devolve into the us and them, the either or kind of thing. And so I sense that more and more people are becoming aware of the things that I've been talking about and learning about for the last over a decade. And um, hopefully, in some way, we can all contribute to that process on a growing scale. Um, another question I... I have that I've, I've wanted to hear your what your thoughts are on this concept is lab grown meat. Where does it, it, it does it fit in? Will it make an impact? And is it really 
better, healthier, more sustainable. Well, yeah. So I, I'll start off by saying just because we can doesn't mean we should. Um, I'll follow that with the point that so many of the arguments for it are based on flawed worldviews and narratives. And so then their justifications are also flawed. Um, you know, they, they're, they're not making a product that's going to fit the people that don't want to eat animal source food, right? That, because their argument is it is animal source food. Uh, right. The logistics of it, um, I'm not certain, but I think I've read some things that seem to indicate that you're really going to have to do a lot to maintain sterility in these systems, and that won't come without a cost. Um, I'll add the point about where does where do the resources come from that are going to be used to grow this. I'll move on to exactly what is it you're growing, which part of an animal are you, because not all meat is the same. And so much of this is based on the idea that fat is bad. So we'll produce this lean protein. And my point is what happens if it turns out that animal fat is not bad? And what about all the other nutrients that come along with it? It's not just protein, it's all these others. So you're not, the, the, there's several flaws in their argument. And I guess to wrap it up, I'll just have one word, margarine. Yeah. <laughs> have we recovered from margarine yet? <laughs> and that was supposed to be this engineered replacement for butter. And why was that? Well, because butter was bad for you. Well, not so fast. Maybe butter isn't bad for you. Maybe, in fact, margarine is worse for you than butter. Um, yeah. so, so those are the things that cycle through my mind whenever the subject of lab-grown meat comes up. And um, I, I think whenever we really do the analysis, if, if this is a replacement for you know, uh, animal agriculture, there's still going to be... you know. Like, the the need for those ecosystem services provided by grazing livestock yes. so uh, it's not going to replace that need environmentally for you know animal agriculture well yeah somebody described beef cows as um self-locomotive self-locomoting self-replicating self-loading solar-powered uh, anaerobic fermentation vessels or something like that. I mean, takes all the romance right out of it. But you've got the system where the, the, the methane and the CO2 that's emitted by the animal is coming from fixed carbohydrate that was the process of photosynthesis. So it's a cycling of CO2. The, the methane that's emitted is oxidized in about 10 years to CO2. So we, we've got this cycling. All of these systems where they're going to manufacture a food-like substance is going to be driven by electrical power, by fossil fuels, um, that's an enrichment of CO2 into the atmosphere. 
um, because it's it's the burning of these fossil fuels producing CO2 rather than the cycling. Um, and, and there's lots we could talk about there. But again, that just speaks to me of their flawed sort of models. And depending on how you construct the models, you can come to whatever answer you'd like. And I, I think we're seeing a lot of that in this. Yeah, the, the quality of modeling data is just as, as good as the person designing the, the equations to, to calculate it. So uh, if you have a preconceived notion, know which way you want your model to turn out, uh, you can force it that direction as well. So. Yeah, and I, I mean, to be fair and open, I'm an agriculturalist. I have my bias and my perspective. Um, and I'm pretty open about it. I just think that, what is it, 20 million years since all of the current uh, ruminant families, are, or at least ruminants, were present uh, in, in the record? I mean, that's a long time to work on perfecting a system. And it seems like, in its wisdom, we've been provided with that system. Uh, and now in our hubris, we're going to come along and say, oh, well, we can replace, we know how to do this. And of course, this is a system that will be controlled by even fewer people than currently impact the, you know, current system. And so I, I, that's another reason in my mind for some suspicion and skepticism and perhaps a little, um, uh, reluctance, or, or at least let's let's take this one a little slower and and be sure that we're fully examining it. Yeah, that's good points. I've just been reading some on that, and I was like, well, you know, I've, I've got Peter here, he, and he asked if I had any questions for him because I've been kind of wanting to to hear your in <laughs> your thoughts. That's Fair enough, and anytime you'd like, I'd be happy to share some stuff that's been accumulating in my uh, EndNote collection. Um, well, thank you, Paul. I uh, appreciate the time. Um, whenever we can visit again, I look forward to it. It won't be at Toad Suck Bucks, though. That's unfortunate. Toad Suck Bucks, huh? Yeah. Do you, do you, I, I remember fondly a visit to the uh, Arkansas uh, Forage and Grassland meeting, and I was treated to a night at... Um, oh, in Conway, Toadsuck. Uh, <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. That's a, that's a classic. Yes, it's a, it's a cultural icon. I've gotten to yeah. visit many of them around the country. I really enjoy that part of well, it. Well, if you make it back to Arkansas, I'll find a way to get there myself, and we will, <laughs> we will take some time at Toad Suck Bucks. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, happy holidays. Thank you, and, and happy holidays to you as well, Peter. And I really appreciate the invitation to talk to you. And, um, I, whenever you initially invited me and said, well, we'll you know, we're going to talk for an hour and a half or so. And uh, I thought, well, there's, there's no way I can talk for that long. But, you know, when it's talking to Peter Ballerstead, you can, you know, find something to talk about for, for a lot longer than just an hour and a half. So, Thank you.